You're listening to the Weed Smart Podcast, where each fortnight we chat about dealing with those pesky weeds. Welcome to the Weed Smart Podcast. I'm Jessica Strauss, and on this edition of the podcast, we're catching up with West Wimmera farmer Sam Eastwood. Sam is particularly keen on managing weeds in non-cropped and unproductive areas of the farm. And so we're going to find out from him how he keeps on top of them and why it's such a priority for him. And we'll also be chatting with University of Sydney Precision Weed Control PhD student Guy Coleman. Earlier this year, Guy, along with Dr. Michael Walsh, hosted a workshop on weed recognition in Wagga Wagga, New South Wales. And Guy is going to walk us through the key learnings from that workshop and also reveal some details about a new open source weed locator his team is releasing. But my co-host and Western Extension agronomist for WeedSmart, Pete Newman, does join me. How are you going, Pete? Oh, I'm really well, Jess. Rain keeps falling in WA. Keeps on coming just every three days. It's so funny, Jess, when you get a wet season like this, you just completely stop looking at the weather forecast because, <laughs> uh, and I'm sure the farmers are doing that too because it just keeps on coming. Yeah, it is very wet. And I, I stupidly did a hike on Sunday, which was our second wettest day in July in 20 years or something like that, Pete. And uh, yeah, it really was. I was completely drenched. We had people falling over in the mud and everything. <laughs> they say there's no such thing as bad weather, Jess, just bad clothing. Were you uh, adequately dressed? Well, I thought my pants would be suitable, but they weren't. So they were drenched. <laughs> but I did have a nice warm core because I had a good Gore-Tex jacket on. So I was okay. <laughs> there you go. And you've got some exciting news, Jess. Yeah, so I'm officially taking over the role from uh, Lisa Mayer as the project manager for WeedSmart. So that's really exciting and a great opportunity for me. And yeah, it's big news. It's scary, but it's exciting. And I'm, I'm really happy to take on the opportunity. But yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, Congratulations. Thank yeah. you. Project has been going from strength to strength. I'm sure it'll keep going under your watchful eye. Fingers crossed. But yeah, I'd like to really uh, say a big congratulations to Lisa Mayer as well for doing such an amazing job for Weed Smart and managing the project. She's really uh, enabled the project to flourish. So it is big shoes to fill, Pete, but I am excited. Yeah, absolutely. I remember high-fiving Lisa at the RE offices there. It must have been in 2013 when we won the project, yes, and Lisa was the one who really uh, led that bid, won the project and has led it ever since. So, yeah, kudos to Lisa. Huge job over a long period of time and uh, it was a good project to start with, but it's just grown and grown and now we've got this national team. So, but we can do things like this, Jess. Definitely. And uh, just so everyone is aware, Lisa is not leaving completely. She'll still be project support for Weed Smart. So, she's still in the offices. Sometimes when you have changes in positions like this, uh, you know, it's, you know, you think yeah, the person has departed, but Lisa is still working with us. But uh, yeah, but just on a part-time basis. So yeah, really great, exciting opportunity. But Pete, let's get into the podcast interviews for today. I just wanted to firstly, because this is kind of related to our first interview, Pete, we do have a new article up on the Weed Smart website all about double paraquat and this one is uh, basically looking at what the benefits are of using a double paraquat knockdown. James Jess who is a research and technical services manager at Western Ag in Ballarat provides uh, answers on this one so I'll put the link for that article into the podcast show notes but Pete can you just run us through this whole concept of double paraquat and why this is you know potentially a uh, a good option for farmers? A pretty amazing change Jess it's Incredible how, you know, we think that we might have a, a practice that we're going to be stuck with or not stuck with but doing for a long time and then all of a sudden it changes. And I was talking to Phil Hawker from Western Ag recently who uh, would be James's boss and he told me all about 
farmers getting into double paraquat, really, because they had big problems with glyphosate-resistant ryegrass. All of a sudden, they were doing paraquat, followed by paraquat, including Group Gs in there and other preems, and massive adoption. He reckons 80% of, uh, of his clients in some areas using this practice, and so a really quick adoption of a different knockdown practice. And so we've got a bit of work to do there, Jess. A good article to start with here, written by Cindy Benjamin. But we're going to have a bit of work to do here to work out how we look after paraquat with this double paraquat practice. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, we'll do some more interviews and, yeah, potentially webinar details and that kind of thing down the track. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you if you've got any specific questions around it and areas you think we should cover. Let us know by sending us a direct message on Twitter. But, Pete, let's get into our first interview for the podcast. Up first, we're going to be hearing from Sam Eastwood from Caniva. He's a grower there and he is really got a good priority around managing his uncropped areas and controlling those weeds on fence lines and uncropped areas of his farm. Pete, why is this so important? Well, it's a bit of an old chestnut, Jess. We've talked about it before, but we don't want to destroy one of our best herbicides, if not our best ever herbicide, glyphosate, on the least productive part of the farm. And so that's your fence lines or drainage lines or just some of those unproductive areas. And so I've spoken to a lot of growers where they have developed glyphosate resistance on their farm, they developed it on the fence line, and then it spread into the paddock. And now they're dealing with it over large areas. And so, yeah, Sam really talks about how he prioritised this early on and just made sure that he used a good double knock, went early and and has avoided those uh, big blowouts on the fence lines. Yeah, all right. Well, let's take a listen and hear from Sam. In today's interview, we're catching up with farmer Sam Eastwood. Sam is based in Caniva in the West Wimmera and he grows canola, cereals, legumes and pulse for grain and hay. And Sam is particularly keen on managing weeds in non-cropped and unproductive areas of the farm. And so we're going to find out how he keeps on top of them and why it's a priority for him. Sam does join us now. How are you going, Sam? Yeah, good. Thanks, Jess. You've been very busy, so I really appreciate you taking the time to yeah do this interview. What have you been up to, Sam? So I've been busy last yeah the last week or so getting on top of some grass sprays and yeah getting ready for our first round of uh, urea spreading. So we've had some really good rain here in the last few weeks, which has brought the crop along. We had a really late start, so now we're just trying to yeah fit everything in in between um, these. Yeah, rain events, which is always a challenge, but we're getting there. That's great to hear, Sam. And before we jump into the topic today, can you just give us a bit of an overview of your farming system, just in a bit more detail? Yeah, Jess. So we're a no-till continuous cropping operation. Here in the West Wimmera, we only have livestock on the property over summer for grazing uh, stubbles, which we do on adjustment. So, yeah, basically no stock in the, in the system as such. And, yeah, we're uh, roughly 30% canola, 30% cereal, 30% legume, give or take a few percent, obviously, for, for the cropping rotation. Yeah, great. And what kind of weed burdens do you have at your place? So, yeah, typical of a, of a Wimmera kind of clay farm. We've got, obviously, ryegrass is probably has been in the last, well, forever, probably public enemy number one, but also cares, which is, yeah, vet bed straw, they're probably the main problem weeds, radish as well, but we seem to keep on top of that pretty easily. They're the main, probably the main ones, marshmallow and dead nettle, they're all in there. Yeah, but ryegrass and yeah, tears and bed straw seem to be the, probably the main weeds that are giving us the issues with our crop types. 
Yeah, right. And Sam, so we are focusing on controlling weeds in non-cropped areas in this interview. It is something that you do uh, keep on top of at your place. Can you first tell us what made that a priority for you? Yeah, as we moved into a continuous cropping system and so we got completely out of on a livestock about a decade ago or a bit over and we were focusing heavily on, on growing crops for grain and we also introduced hay but it was when we started to yeah really focus heavily on continuous cropping and the fact that we were trying to get on top of ryegrass at the time probably was the main one and ryegrass resistance and yeah really trying to get our numbers it was all about getting our numbers down it was a numbers you know the numbers game and yeah controlling the fence lines just became part of that integrated approach because we're getting reasonable control in our in paddocks in crop if you like but we were bringing them back in from from fence lines and around trees and those those non-crop kind of areas yeah yeah okay then that makes sense and so how did you go about controlling these weeds in non-cropped areas the main approach has been to spray them out. So we use a double knock spraying scenario, just like your double knock uh, a paddock before you cropped it. A mix of non-selective herbicides with glyphosate being doing the main legwork there for the grass, and yeah, double knocking with paraquat that couple of days later. Which is yeah, it was the double knock probably was introduced maybe four or five years in because we found that we we're trying to pull down these really large populations of ryegrass which were quite advanced and that became harder to do. So yeah, we moved to double knocking which we've had yeah quite quite good success with. Yeah, okay. And was that due to glyphosate resistance? That's obviously an issue in lots of parts of the country. Was that part of the reason why you moved over to doing double knock? Yeah, it, it was. Yeah, definitely. Because we were we were really concerned that we were actually going to breed resistance on our fence line by applying or under-applying, really, um, glyphosate to to large ryegrass plants and having them survive. So if then they set seed Mm. and we drag those into the paddock, we're actually going to make our, we're going to, you know, make our resistance issues or our ryegrass issues worse. Yeah. So, you know, uh, bringing a susceptible seed into into the paddock is a pain because it's there and you've got to then deal with that and there's always a bit of, dormancy in in some of those seeds and so it, it lasts for a number of years mm. but yeah if you've if you've brought a, a resistant seed across or seeds that are partially resistant because you've yeah you haven't given them a fatal dose on the on the fence line you've actually escalated your problem so double knocking became yeah really important so that we had yeah, no survivors basically yeah, yeah perfect no that makes total sense and so what impact do you think this has made on controlling weeds on your farm sam yeah, look, it, it has it has made a large impact. We could we could definitely see where we were where we had ryegrass. I'm going to focus mainly on ryegrass because that's mainly the, the the weed that we've been trying to control on our yep. fence line. Yep. That that was yeah definitely noticeable that once we started getting on top of the weeds in in crop and we were doing the fence lines as well, we weren't bringing them in off the fence line, and, and we we did see big reductions in that because. Obviously, the the harvesters when they pick up a ryegrass seed or any weed seed in a in a crop or a harvest situation, they don't just deposit that seed straight back out the back of the header, right there. They carry it and distribute it across your paddock 
quite effectively, <laughs> which is yeah. uh, which is not good. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, by controlling those fence lines, we we definitely saw a reduction in weeds coming in off those non-cropped areas for sure. That's great to hear. And so for other farmers who might be listening to this, what would your uh, advice be to them in terms of going about controlling weeds in non-cropped areas? Is there any tips you'd like to share? Yeah, my kind of thoughts or observations over doing it over time would be go probably earlier rather than later. We can get caught up doing other spray operations and fertiliser spreading and the fence lines seem to be the last one, obviously, that you've sometimes that you, you go and tackle and by that time your populations are, are large, the plants are big and they can take a, a huge amount to, to get under control or to kill. So really robust rates of chemicals, whatever you're using, high rates of sulfate of ammonia in the mix as well has proven for us with our glyphosate application to, to really help the glyphosate and all those other general spraying tactics like don't be spraying after or around frosty weather, just totally avoid frosty weather. If it's had a couple of frosts, you've just got to wait and get your double knock spot on. So only spray as many fence lines as you can get back to within that you know two day period to get your double knock on and and make sure you get that that control. Because if you miss it and they survive, you've got a you've got a really big problem on your hands. That's great advice, Sam. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the Weed Smart podcast today. I know you're so busy and, yeah, very valuable for you to share your story with us on managing non-cropped areas for weeds. So we really appreciate you taking the time. No, that's all right, Jess. No problem at all. Thank you so much to Sam Eastwood there. And Pete, I really like how Sam has got his priorities right. He really knows how important it is to manage those unproductive areas and he goes out and really looks at them as a priority and and kills weeds along fence lines and unproductive areas first. Pete, is this common or is is Sam getting a bit of a golden star here? No, common practice, Jess, is to finish everything else and then get an old man, (laughs) your father or someone who's hanging around and they go spraying fence lines to keep them busy. I'm being a little little bit unfair there, but no, often, you know, farmers get very busy looking after the main gig, which is putting in crops and spraying them and fertilising them and the fence lines get left to last, whereas uh, Sam has really focused here on, no, they are a priority because we've got to make sure we don't blow out big glyphosate resistance problems or resistance problems in general in those areas. Yeah, so he talks about going early, going hard, double knocking and just taking no prisoners, not accepting any survivors. So it's just like everything, if you prioritise something, Jess, you can make a go of it. So Pete, moving on to our next interview for the podcast today, we're going to be hearing from Guy Coleman and Guy is going to be talking to us about some of the key learnings that were presented at a recent workshop he helped uh, organise with Dr. Michael Walsh and that was all about open source data and weed recognition. Pete, you've done a bit of work with Guy. Can you just talk us through how some of this stuff works? Because it is complicated and it's very interesting, isn't it? Yeah, look, Guy is one of the smartest people I think I've ever met, Jess. <laughs> he probably doesn't <laughs> want to hear me talking him up like that, but he's a very clever fellow. We're very lucky to have him in agriculture and he just loves this stuff. He, he's built his own robot to drive over plots and measure things and try and spray things and, and pluck things out, weeding and he just absolutely is fully dedicated to the cause of, of machine learning and, you know, using cameras to detect weeds. And he is trying to now apply that over a big area and uh, allow people to work out whatever weed is a problem in what situation, take photos of it, upload it to this website 
and then potentially have algorithms developed in the future so that we can make the most of this sea and spray technology. So, yeah, we're lucky to have Guy. I've done a little bit of work with him firsthand on this stuff and I've felt like an absolute dinosaur, Jess, I can tell you that. <laughs> well, yeah, no, he is such a clever guy and I have met Guy in person and seen some of his work and, yeah, very passionate, which we love and it's great that he's in agriculture. Is there anything else you want to mention before we take a listen to this interview, Pete? No, I think we should just go for it, Jess. Let's take a listen. In this interview, we're catching up with University of Sydney Precision Weed Control PhD student Guy Coleman. Earlier this year, Guy, along with Dr Michael Walsh, hosted a workshop on weed recognition in Wagga Wagga, New South Wales. And so Guy is going to talk us through the key learnings presented at this week workshop and also reveal some details about a new open source weed locator his team is releasing. Guy does join us now. Hi, Guy. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. So you're no longer actually based in Australia, but in Texas in the US, which is really exciting. Can you tell us a little bit firstly about your journey over to the States? Yeah, sure. Thanks so much, uh, Jess, for having me on as well. I'm very happy to, to be here to talk about a few of those things you mentioned. So currently based in Texas A&M in College Station in the US as part of uh, a bit of research for my PhD. I uh, came over here just uh, about a month ago, I think now, five, five weeks ago. Uh, and what I'll be doing over here is looking at the uh, detection of palmer amaranth, which is a key weed in uh, this part of the US, I guess the whole of the US, in uh, cotton and how different growth stages of palmer amaranth basically affect its detection accuracy. Because as I'm sure everyone would be well aware, weeds change a lot in their appearance as they grow over the season and as does the crop. So if we can better understand uh, how that detection accuracy changes over the season, then perhaps we can work out better how um, the performance of these green on green sprayers might change as well. That's really interesting. And yeah, palm amaranth, I know about that weed. It's an awful weed. So I think anything we can throw at it is a good thing. And so, Guy, today we're going to talk a little bit about the uh, open source weed data that uh, University of Sydney and the Precision Weed Control Lab, which runs out of University of Sydney, has made available. Can you just firstly give us a bit of an overview of what this involves? Obviously, there's a few moving parts. So if you can give a bit of a broad overview, that would be great. As you've mentioned there, it's the, the open source nature is probably the, the first thing to start off with. And those people who perhaps haven't come across the term before, it, it's all about people being able to contribute and access data, software, even hardware designs for free, but also having this ethos around community-based development. So lots of tools these days in the machine learning world and machine learning community, uh, people tend to call it uh, open source. So anyone can use them. Uh, they can use them potentially based on their license uh, for commercial purposes. And in different licenses, they can even uh, privatize that, that as well and, and then sell a product based on that open source code or, or data. Uh, but it's all depending on the different type of licenses uh, that are out there that are, are well worth looking into. But that's, I guess, the background to it. But what it really means is that anyone can access and anyone can really start to develop these sorts of algorithms based on those, those open source architectures. So big companies like Google and Facebook have released all their uh, open source tools. So one of them is called TensorFlow. And so what TensorFlow allows people to do uh, in a coding language called Python is actually train machine learning models based on another set of open source tools, which is uh, these open source architectures of algorithms. So it's like getting a house and you fill with all the furnishings, right? So all the house is open source and you get to put the furnishings inside it. And what we're providing through the open source database is effectively those furnishings. And in this case, it's uh, actually weed data. So it's images of weeds 
in Australian context, and it could be global context. Uh, at the moment, it's of uh, images of weeds in wheat as well. And previously, all this work and research and development of architectures, so that like structure, I guess, that you can develop into a specific algorithm, uh, all that work has been done on things like uh, coffee cups or chairs or dogs, cats. And so all these algorithms are, are typically designed for that sort of detection. So one of the benefits and what we hope to see down the track from this platform of, of imagery is uh, more specific development that focuses on weed detection. So we have these larger architectures that are actually designed for weed detection that anyone can use. So really focusing on that open source side of things. That's probably the ethos of it and the, the, the reason behind it. And I'll probably talk a bit more about the, uh, the structure of it as well, if, if you like, that would help. Yeah, let's hear a little bit more about the structure as well, and then we'll get into some of the uh, key learnings from the workshop in a moment. Did you want to just give us a bit of a structural overview of how it works? Yeah, so anyone can access it at the moment, so it's all live and, and uh, ready to go. So if you head over to weed-ai at uh, .sydney.edu.au, or uh, Weed AI is the website. And uh, what it is, is this, at the moment, it's a series of images that people have uploaded, mostly me at the moment, but people can upload any images they would like that have been annotated of weeds in any crop. And people can also download that data they would like to use, I guess, to train some of these algorithms. So someone could upload a, a set of images. So I uploaded recently of blue lupins in uh, narrow leaf lupins from the northern growing region in WA. And that data can then be downloaded and used by a machine learning engineer anywhere in the world to then solve that part of the problem or, or run algorithms and develop these algorithms that solve that problem. And previously, that wouldn't have been possible. So what has gone into the structure and the development of this database is a lot of development around uh, data formats and standards. So one really big issue about all of this is, is trying to make sure everything talks to each other. And I'm sure people are well aware of the interoperability issues that would be on farms. And that extends equally into data sets and machine learning too. So making sure everything talks, has the same annotation format, so all the weeds are in the right places and the, the, when you download it, you know that this is a weed and, and that's the crop potentially. And then things like agricultural context are really important as well. So what growth stage crop is it in? What uh, background conditions are there? The things like surface soil coverage, soil colour, even types of weeds. You have all the lists of uh, like taxonomy, the hierarchy of the weeds. And that gives the ability then to search and filter by different weed species. So if you want to just detect broadleaf weeds, then you can go up to the family level and select all your brassicaceae uh, weeds that might be relevant for wild radish detection, perhaps. All that is equally as relevant for grasses too. So what this, yeah, this platform then does is opens up the world of weeds and weed detection to a whole range of new people that might not necessarily have been able to access it before. And also, I guess, contributions too. So farmers and uh, researchers and, and anyone can also contribute so it's that the contribution side as well as the, the access side definitely and we'll give a bit more information later on i think on how uh, farmers and agronomists can contribute but firstly let's talk about this workshop that you hosted not too long ago so earlier this year you hosted a workshop on weed recognition which is what we're talking about today and what you've explained there about the database but what did participants actually learn at this particular workshop what were some of the key takeaways uh, the workshop was uh, all about trying to uh, understand the requirements of the end users of this data. So it was bringing people in the uh, weed control industry and also uh, farmers, agronomists, end users of all this information and, and weed recognition technology and bring them into the same room so we can work out if this platform in its current form was useful or what sorts of developments would be required to make it more useful for 
uploads potentially uh, at the grower level or even at a grower group level or how that would work in effect. And so what people probably uh, took away from it was more about how the platform would contribute to weed recognition development and like that open source H that I've been talking about. And probably secondly was also the machine learning side of the project too. So that workshop was part of a larger GRDC machine learning project. And while the uh, database was uh, one key feature of that, the second aspect of that project was also developing some machine learning models that recognized ryegrass and uh, turnip weed in wheat. So that was, I guess, based on that northern growing region uh, in New South Wales. So those uh, turnip weed is a bit of an allegory for wild radish as well. But what people, I guess, learned from that as well was that while turnip weed is in wheat detection is, was possible, uh, as was ryegrass, what we saw was that turnip weed was a bit easier to detect uh, than, than ryegrass and also easier to annotate too. So if you told someone to annotate a, a nice rosette of wild radish or turnip weed, it is fairly straightforward because it, you can see where it's clearly delineated, whereas trying to annotate potentially ryegrass or other sorts of grass species in a grass crop is uh, fairly, fairly difficult. So we really benefited from hearing uh, that feedback from uh, growers and, and uh, the weed control industry about how they could contribute and how the platform could uh, better ma- match their expectations and uh, how it could yeah, hopefully gain a bit of traction and, and really contribute to the development of these algorithms. Certainly, Guy. And as we know, weed recognition software, it has come a long way and we're, we're seeing real big breakthroughs with this technology, not only with green on brown weed detection, but green on green. And that's already being seen in optical spraying. But we're really only at the beginning as you're talking about this open source data that's been made available. There's still a lot of progress that can be made. So I just wanted to get your perspective since you're in the in the thick of it. What's your perspective on how this open source data will help in this process of innovating weed control solutions going forward? So what I think really excites me about open source uh, data and open source software and, and the hardware is that in other industries, so in the machine learning industry, all this open source stuff really promoted and, and advanced the industry at breakneck speed almost. And that was really only potentially possible because of the, the open sourcing of this technology, because that meant that anyone could use the technology. So all of a sudden you opened your end user group up considerably. And that meant that uh, people could start finding potential issues with it. They could start finding new uses, new adaptations, I guess, of the existing technology. And that means that all of a sudden you have this much wider group of people that can start contributing where they might not be able to contribute before. And if we do that for agriculture and particularly these data sets, and as I guess I mentioned shortly, this uh, open weed locator and even more open source projects, we can start to involve with the weed control community, farmers, really at the, the development stage, if they're interested in, and start to improve that feedback cycle between the people, the end users, and they might have a whole range of different, I guess, contributions in terms of how these things might look in the field or how, how they might work and what sort of features they might need and uh, how that technology translates to real field impact. Yeah, that's really exciting, Guy. And like we've mentioned, farmers and agronomists, they can help in this process and they are invited to contribute to the weed library uh, to help with the machine learning of different weeds at different growth stages. Can you just talk to that a little bit more about how people can actually be involved in this process? As you mentioned, it would be fantastic to have as many people contributing as possible. And uh, the best way to contribute, I guess, is to really just get out there in the fields uh, and collect imagery of or, or weeds that you're interested in. 
But what's most important is that the uh, the collection must be consistent and at consistent heights that are reportable and might represent a, a use case in in the future, perhaps. So if your camera is held directly above your phone camera is held directly above the weed, then that might be a good detection if the camera on a boom or robot is directly above the weed in the future as well. So while it's not perfect, that translation between a phone camera and, and machine vision cameras or the uh, deployment level, the expensive type ones that they operate on these machines, there is a small benefit, I guess, or a, a benefit to having that initial data that people can work on uh, as well. And so I, probably the first step is, is getting in contact with myself or uh, other people on the weed AI site. And we could point you in the direction of the sorts of weeds you want, it might want to collect images of and how you might want to collect that imagery as well. So maintaining specific heights and uh, we can point in the direction of the right data to record as well. Yeah, certainly, Guy. And we'll provide the details for that in the show notes. And uh, I'll put your Twitter handle in the show notes as well so people can follow along. Now, lastly, Guy, we teased in the intro there that you do have some exciting news to share with us on a new development you've been working on as well. And this is the open source weed locator. And you have also talked a bit about this on your Twitter. Can you tell us a little bit about this new development? Yeah, as I've mentioned uh, with the open source software and the hardware side of it, the open weed locator is trying to, to bring those two things together. So what it is, is just really cheap off the shelf computer, a Raspberry Pi minus the E and not the, not the Pi version. Uh, it's a small embedded computer. And uh, what you can do is run uh, simple algorithms on that that just at the moment pick up green in a uh, fallow paddock. So fallow weed control is, is fairly important for uh, moisture, moisture management and nutrient uh, management and preventing that weed seed set for uh, subsequent seasons. So what we thought would be a good step is developing these open source camera-based fallow weed detectors. So they have a camera, they have this computer, and then what the, uh, the next part of that is actually mapping each of those detections where that green was uh, strong. So where it detected that green from uh, the camera feed, then it activates a relay, which you can then connect to any sort of solenoid. It could be a hydraulic solenoid in the case of targeted tillage or even a, a solenoid on a, on a boom sprayer to activate a, a nozzle. So then you can spray a weed. And so all of this code and all this hardware and, and all the results will all be published uh, open source as I've been mentioned a few times now so people can really contribute to the development of these weed locators and uh, all this different sort of technology and that will mean that people can improve it and, and give feedback and uh, really hopefully speed up the, the rate of adoption and, and the rate of advancement of this technology so that more people can, can start to use it. That's awesome, Guy. And we have covered a lot today, but is there any other final thoughts that you wanted to leave with us before we wrap things up? Uh, just that I think this technology is uh, really opening doors to a whole range of new exciting uh, things and, and having that, that feedback uh, avenue through open source and this community development around data and, and hardware for site-specific weed management, I think will really uh, be an exciting avenue for uh, improvement in, in weed control uh, in Australia and, and also potentially around the world. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Guy, all the way from Texas in the US via the magic of Zoom. We really appreciate it. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Jess, and uh, yeah, all, all the best down there in Australia. Thank you so much to Guy Coleman there for giving us such a great overview on the weed recognition work that he's doing. And Pete, as was mentioned in the interview, it is encouraged for farmers to get involved and take photos which they can upload and provide to to Guy and the team so that they can include it in their machine learning open source data pack. But obviously there is a little bit to it and he needs you to take photos in a specific way for them to be useful. So I'm going to throw the links to all of... Uh, uh, yeah, guys, Twitter and the website that you need 
so that you can be across how to help with that project uh, properly. But yeah, it's exciting, isn't it, Pete? Yeah, it is exciting. And look, there are guidelines, Jess, and there's a specific way that he wants the photos taken. But I can tell you that it's pretty quick. We did a bit of this and just had a selfie stick and just holding the, using your iPhone or whatever smartphone you've got and just holding it certain height above the crop, certain angle and click, 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 click. You can capture a lot of images really fast. And the theory is that, it, you know, it is actually very easy to do. And if we do get farmers doing it and get thousands of images uploaded, then down in the track, we're going to have some algorithms that can detect and see and spray those weeds in those crops. So yeah, great initiative um, that this is happening and just really good that it is open source and that it's going to create algorithms for all sorts of weeds, not just the probably the most profitable ones, if you like, Jess, yeah. that, that is obviously going to be the focus of companies that get into this space. It just means that we could get algorithms for, for weeds in all sorts of situations that farmers need. Yeah, so we definitely encourage you to get involved in some community science. It's really cool. And yeah, you could be part of the future of uh, weed detection technology. So that's a cool thing to be a part of. But Pete, that is our podcast for today. And I just wanted to give a big thank you to our guests once again, to Caniva Farmer, Sam Eastwood, and of course, University of Sydney Precision Weed Control PhD Guy Coleman. And uh, we've got a few things that I'd like to keep you in the loop on as well. So we've got our next regional update, which will be out next Monday. And we're heading to the southern region and hearing from our southern extension agronomist, Chris Davey. So make sure you're downloading that one. And we've also got some new content on the website for you to check out as well. We've got our article explainer on what to expect for Weed Smart Week in Esperance. And we've released the program now. So you can check the program out in detail. I've got the link to that article, which has everything you need. And we've also got that new article we mentioned at the top of the podcast on double paraquat knockdowns. I'll put the link in the show notes for that too. And we also have a new webinar recording. So if you couldn't attend our webinar last week on ryegrass management in the high rainfall zone, that recording's on the website and I'll provide the link for that one too. That's with Dr. Chris Preston and Southern Farming Systems' James Manson. They provided the info and it was hosted by our High Rainfall Zone Extension Agronomist, Yana Dixon. And make sure you get your tickets to Weed Smart Week. The early bird does end at the end of this month on July 31st and it is quite a bit of a saving. So at the moment, the tickets are $190 and after July 31st, that will go up to $250. So yeah, Pete, definitely worth getting your tickets earlier rather than later, isn't it? Absolutely. Always a great event, Jess. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. You can also sign up for our monthly blog, The Weed Smart Whip Around. All of our content from the last month is featured, so it's easy to get the latest news. And we'll provide the sign-up link in the podcast notes. Also, it would mean the world to us if you could spread the Weed Smart message by sharing this podcast with your friends. We're getting great listens, but we always want more. So please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and it's also a massive help to get the word out. Yeah, exactly, Pete. Thank you so much for joining me and being the co-host today for the podcast. And yeah, like we said, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss us next time. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, Jess.